<laughs> What's happening, weirdos? Uh, I hope everybody is happy and healthy and doing well through all of this. Uh, I just we did a recording today actually with an author uh, that's sort of not everything that he does, but his name is Chris Hewitts, and he wrote a book called The Enneagram of Belonging. It won't be out for a couple of weeks. Um, this is unplanned, unscheduled, this little plug up top. But it was one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done. It always concerns me when somebody that might not be uh, a name does this podcast that people will skip it. So I'm saying on this episode, and maybe I'll plug it again, that when it does drop in a few weeks, please make sure to check out the Chris Hewitts, H-E-U-E-R-T-Z, Hewitts uh, episode um, and check out his book, The Enneagram of Belonging. He is incredible. We didn't actually talk. I know you know that I love talking about the Enneagram, but the conversation uh, went all over the place and only touched briefly on my favorite ancient understanding of personality types. <laughs> um, this, on the other hand, is Jack Cornfield, who is incredible. And for Val and I both, uh, through all of this, has just been like a real port in the storm. And I know for a lot of people, he's been posting a lot of guided meditations, one of which he does, a very short one in this podcast, and just a lot of wisdom and patience and love uh, while people are struggling during this time. So I wanted to bump this one up and get it out as quickly as possible, because I know this is a tricky time, a difficult time for people. And uh, Jack is just such a, a source of comfort and wisdom and peace. So... Here he is. I, I do want to say, I, I suppose I don't have to say this, but this is not what I would call a typical You Made It Weird episode. Um, Jack uh, mentioned that he does better when he can prepare. You give him some subjects and he can sort of go off on them. So you'll see that he's sort of guided in conversation, which I was delighted in. He, he does a great job, but it's not necessarily the typical me uh, interjecting, uh, interrupting, asking for uh, loss of virginity stories or shit your pants stories or whatever it might be. It really is just like a, a, a highlight and a showcase and a spotlight on the wonderful teachings of Jack. And uh, I hope it is as helpful to you as it was to me. I will say, it's so funny, we talk a little bit about poetry in the episode. Some of the things he said in this episode, first of all, I teared up like four or five times. And uh, at one point, he talked about poetry in such a way that Val and I have been starting every day uh, by reading some poetry, usually something by Mary Oliver, who's incredible if you haven't checked her out. Um, and it's just been such a gift to us, such a recalibration of our hearts every morning. So I recommend that. That's just something that I got out of this. I know it might not be for everybody, but it, I was compelled. wasn't planning on telling you that, but here we are. Um, I do want to say this episode is brought to us by our dear friends. Speaking of troubling times. I've been swearing by my uh, CW hemp, Charlotte's Web hemp. They make calm gummies. I mean, come on. You need some calm gummies? I do. Uh, it's CBD. Go to uh, cwhemp.com slash weird and use promo code keepitcrispy19. Get 10% off. Get some calm gummies in your life. Certainly uh, what I've been needing. I also want to say that I wrote two episodes of The Simpsons called Warren Priests. They are now on Hulu. Would mean a lot if people check those out. I think you'll see that there's a lot of the themes and uh, stuff that we talk about on the on this show that made its way onto The Simpsons, which, of course, I'm over the moon, is a dream come true. And uh, 
Yeah, there's the Not Feeling It chicken shirt. The link is on my Instagram. So many things to be not feeling these days. <laughs> if you want to get the official You Made It Weird Not Feeling It chicken shirt, the link is in my Instagram profile. Uh, nothing else to plug. I do want to say the Pete's Picks are the uh, sponsors of this show. Sponsors is too cheap of a word. These are things that I've been using uh, and loving uh, for a long time now. And I reached out to them to see if they wanted to sponsor the show, give us a promo code. They said yes, and I'm very happy that they did. One of which, uh, Kachava, you guys know this by now, Kachava has been my secret weapon in getting all the nutrition and the plant-based superfood nutrient high that I need uh, during this time. It's obviously I'm not going to the grocery store as much to keep things, uh, you know, locked down as much as possible. And Kachava coming to my door has been a lifesaver. It is plant-based. It is a superfood drink mix. It has got omega-3s from chia and flax. It's chocolate. It's vanilla or a scoop of each if you're nasty. It's got eight super fruits in the bag, 17 greens and veggies in the bag, gluten-free, soy-free, no artificial sweeteners or preservatives, but it is delicious. It has coconut nectar, which is a low glycemic sweetener, which means it doesn't spike your blood sugar. It's got digestive support built in, 24 grams of plant-based protein, boom, nine grams of fiber in every serving, and that's the, the main selling point is that it's delicious. I always joke that Val doesn't like a lot of the weird hippie things that I eat, but she loves cachava. It's good enough to make in just water. I know that sounds crazy, but it's 100% true. 90% of the time, I've just put a scoop in a shake bottle with some water, shake it up, 30 seconds away from a healthy meal full of the nutrients and the vitamins and the phytonutrients and the minerals that you need. Or get crazy, Almond milk, frozen strawberries, tastes like chocolate strawberry ice cream. It's like a milkshake, but it makes you feel better than a milkshake. That's my main selling point. It's got maca for energy and vitality. It's got cacao, which is a wonderful mood-elevating superfood. Raw cacao. We're not talking about junk chocolate here. We're talking about the real superfood, the cacao nut. I got it to add to my smoothie, but it is the smoothie. It is a meal replacement. People take it uh, to lose weight. I didn't. That's not why I take it. Maybe I should, <laughs> but uh, the reason is it keeps you full three, four hours after you drink it, which is incredible. So try it. Uh, get high on nutrition. That's what I say. That's not their, that's not their slogan. That's my slogan. Kachava, K-A-C-H-A-V-A dot com slash weird, and you'll get 20% off your order. Speaking of superfoods, my friend David just turned me on to Tahitian Noni, which is a ancient superfruit. Uh, I didn't know this, but I, I'm glad that I found out. Tahitian noni has been used for thousands of years as a ancient health remedy. It's been known for its medicinal properties, and now is scientifically proven to boost immune activity and naturally enhance energy and support overall wellness. So I've been taking this uh, from this company, Noni New Age. It's Tahitian noni juice, Tahit Nonju, I like to call it. I was skeptical at first, but David told me that they have published peer-reviewed studies of clinical double-blind trials with placebo that show four ounces twice a day increase your natural killer cells, that's your NK cells, by 30%. Your NK cells are in charge of keeping your immune system powerful and operational at peak performance. It tastes like 
uh, pomegranate juice kind of. It's got a little kind of a tart sweetness. I like it straight. Or you can put it in your smoothie or put it in with some sparkling water and have it like a spritz. Have a spritz. But the main thing I love about it, I've been doing it for about a month now, four ounces twice a day. I love the feeling it get, gives me. It does boost my energy. I do like the taste. And the main thing is I like knowing that I'm doing something healthy for my body, healthy for my immune system, giving my body 275 nutrients and phytonutrients, key vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants. And I take it in conjunction with their supplement Cell Defense, which is clinically shown to help your body fight inflammation. And normally a one liter bottle of Tahitinone Jew and a bottle of Cell Defense is a hundred bucks. But as a thanks for listening to the podcast and showing your support, you can get both for $40. Do something healthy for your body and show your support of this show. All you have to do is go to noninewage.com slash weird40 and get into it. Uh, that's it. That's all I have to plug. I sincerely hope you enjoy this chat with Jack as much as I did. Boy, it was just, it was like sunshine on my heart. I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And I'm probably going to listen to this again. We were just watching one of his talks today. And if you're into it, go to jackcornfield.com and just gobble up everything that he's putting out these days, guys. It's really, it's really a gift. And I'm so glad that we have him. All right. That's it. Enough blabbing and boring. Get into it. The amazing Jack Cornfield. Did we record that? <laughs> hey, Pete. Hi, Jack. How's it going? How are you? I want to get your cough on the record. I don't want anybody thinking you're superhuman or unattainable. Yeah, exactly. You are a you coughing. Too. You're See, what now? This is an audio recording, I'm assuming, yes? Yes, this is just so we can see one another. Peace and love. Okay, there we go. Good to see you. How are you? How's your kid? She is beautiful. Yes, have you ever... She's three now? How old is she? She's almost two. She's 20 months. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have a... a half. I have an 18-month grandson. Oh, wow. It's really fun. And I'm so glad I'm not the parent. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's either what you want or not what you want, and it's what we want. I'm really happy to yeah. report. Yeah, yeah, of course. We're we're at the at this time, especially. It gives us so much meaning. I remember when um, what what is uh, Thurman Bob Thurman was yeah. talking about doing the dishes at one of the Ramdas retreats that you and I were at. And I always think of him when I do the dishes because he's like, oh, doing the dishes is great. It's, it's quiet time and, and, and it's a time to reflect and, and just feel the water and smell the soap. And I've heard that before. But what he added was there's a feeling of accomplishment. And I was like, that is right on. And that is our experience yeah. is because there's yeah. a baby that needs its diaper change. She needs to be fed. She needs her nap. She's going down for a nap right now. And, and Val and I both are benefiting not only from the love that that Leela is just constantly radiating, but we get meaning. We get like this real story every day of something to take care of and something to do. Beautiful, beautiful. Yes. By the way, we've begun. This is just how we do. Welcome. Welcome. You. <laughs> I'm so happy to see you. I've been uh, enjoying your teachings from afar, and uh, obviously also in person in Maui. Uh, probably five times I think I've I've uh, wow yeah when you were there you know obviously you alternate yeah um, yeah 
but uh, it's it's a wild time, and I know you're feeding a lot of people, and I'm happy to give you a new audience to talk to. I, I know you you do Duncan's podcast, but uh, so there'll be some of I, I love working with Duncan. He's too great. And yes, I've been doing gotten requests from all kinds of things, from the top political campaigns to some of the biggest corporations in America, to a lot of nonprofits and people on the first you know first responders. And part of it is just that. There's a kind of hunger at this time with the pandemic for people to learn how to steady their hearts yeah. and how to kind of keep themselves healthy inwardly so that they can live and be with others and serve in a, in a good way. Yeah. And people realize, oh, the inner life actually needs some tending. Yes. That's, that is, the heart I'm, needs tending. You can't just take it for granted. You said something at the end of one of your talks, which I found very moving, where you were like, it's your choice to like become spacious, to tend your heart and to tend your mind. And in these moments, this is when we're seeing, this is where the rubber meets the road, sort of. Yeah. I, I wrote in my, uh, I wrote a book about my introduction to spirit. And I always want to remember that I used to think that monks just wanted to relax. <laughs> Hey, don't we all want to relax? Well, that's the thing. Actually, my friend and sometime comedian teacher Wes Nisker says what we really want is endless excitement and perfect peace. Wow, both. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's actually, I mean, when I say that, I want to remember that some people might think that you are just like a relaxation expert but that's not really what we're doing we're trying to uh gird up our hearts so that we can better better as a judgment but deal let's just say deal with reality or how would you put it what what is the business of quieting well first i remember my daughter when she was a teenager and we were in some conflict about how long she could go out or how far she could drive and i was a bit, you know, reactive to something. And she looked at me, she said, Dad, chill. Don't you remember? Mindfulness, chill. <laughs> <laughs> I thank wonder. You. Thank you to your, thank you to our chill, our, our, our live-in Zen masters, our children. Yes. I yeah. wonder all the time what Leela's going to do to my, specifically my non-resistance, you know, Ramdas. Well, I, I, I hope you're, putting money in the therapy fund like we did <laughs> <laughs> for yourselves for our kids our oh, for your kids no, no, no. <laughs> to, to work through how whatever we did to them but anyway you're asking a um a semi-serious question and the point of meditation or mindfulness is not simply to relax or stress reduction although those are very useful things, especially when we're stressed. But the point actually is to get ourselves quiet enough and, and present in our life so that we can live with love and wisdom. And sometimes that means dealing with strong emotions or conflict around you and finding a center where you're willing to approach that. And in, in meditation, then, it doesn't mean the goal is to be quiet. The goal is actually to be aware and, and, and kind. I like the phrase that our mutual friend Ramdas used, um, and I use it often, that mindfulness is loving awareness. 
Mm. What that means is that we can tend our own body and our heart and mind with loving awareness. Because if we don't, we just get reactive and caught in stuff and suffer a lot. And we can tend all our connections with the world and all that we do with loving awareness. And if we do, it comes from a place that's more beneficial um, and fruitful for everyone. Yeah. So it's that's really the idea. Totally. When I, when I hear you teaching a, a, a how to deal with all this adversity, and obviously we're all dealing with a lot of adversity, I, it struck me to ask you, I was like, it's not, it seems to me it's not a flaw in the system. You talk about bodhisattvas, these are enlightened beings that would seek out suffering, that would go to where the pandemic was, that would go to where the earthquake had happened or go to wherever the suffering was, that they could uh, re- re- uh, relieve suffering. And of course, in the process, it would be a great teacher to them, I, I imagine, and to everyone involved. So my question for you was, is it a perfect world where we all become enlightened, or is it all in the game? <laughs> you know, that's a question above my pay grade. Is the, world, <laughs> is the world perfect? Is it not? But I love to think of what Mr. Rogers' mother taught him, you know, <laughs> to look for the helpers. And you remember, for example, the hurricane in Houston that flooded out huge neighborhoods and people and their dogs were on their roof for days waiting to be rescued. And then all the, it was called the Cajun Navy. Um, The guys and women, men and women with boats and so forth came by the thousands from Mississippi and Alabama and neighboring states with their airboats and their boats. And as the Cajun Navy, they just came and they said, let's go to the rooftops. Let's take these people off. Let's help. Every difficulty that we have as human beings, and there have been many and there will be many personally and collective, um, also invites and brings out something deep and beautiful in us. Um, and it's so, for generations, uh, millennia, we've lived through epidemics and earthquakes and tornadoes and floods. And we've done it, actually, by the care that we have for one another. Mm-hmm. Margaret Mead was asked at one point um, what she saw as the beginning of civilization. What were the signs of human, you know, and the person who asked expected her to say, well, the earliest cave paintings or some fragments of a bowl or, or a a spear tip or something showing human intelligence. And she said, she said for her, it was a broken thigh bone. There was a skeleton with others um, and the femur had broken and healed. She said, and if you're an animal in the wild and you break your leg, You can't run, you can't get water or food, and you become prey for the other animals who don't survive. But here, this human being had broken their leg, and someone or others had carried them to safety, fed them, given them water, and tended them long enough for their leg to heal. She said, and this is the beginning of human civilization. Hmm. So, you know, I will answer your question, but in a different way. born into us from the beginning is this profound sense of connection with one another. And all of the best scientific research shows infants, pre-verbal infants at Yale, something difficult happening to someone, 
and <clears throat> their eyes and their movements are, how can I help? Wow. Wow. That is so beautiful. Imagine thinking of doing that, studying the eye movements of a baby and going like, oh, they're looking to see, is there food? Is there a bubby? Is there yeah. a blanket? Like, what, what do I need? Imagine empathy existing at such an early stage. It's very clear that it does. I find that to be very, very true. I know Leela's about Your to Your little turn. daughter probably wants to help you sometimes. Here, Daddy, taste this too. Eat this. Share that, this. Well, see, that is a grandfather of an 18-month-old, and, and a parent is like, I feed my daughter, and what really melts me is when she feeds me. Like, she just yeah. starts feeding me, and I'm like, what is going on here? Why does she want to play with a baby doll? Like, she changes a baby doll. Like, she wants to, like do what we're doing to her and mirror that. She's just started kissing. It's unbelievable. I mean, she's always, we've kissed her. We've, we've been respectful of her boundaries, but like we'll, we'll sneak a kiss, but now she'll kiss us. And it's just unbelievable to see that, that blossoming in her. I, I had, I bring it up all the time. I always talk to people, my guests about God. And my friend, Emily Gordon said, when I see someone hit by a car, and everybody gathers over to see how they can help. She goes, that is my God. And I was like, that's very intuitively wise to me. That just feels really right on. I also had a friend talk about the yearning. You quoted this poem, I think it was Kabir maybe, that said, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. That's Pablo Neruda. Neruda. Oh, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring, no matter with climate change or the things that we really need to care about because that will make the difference of suffering for millions. But there's something about the life force of earth itself that wants to heal and renew itself. And we see it in this pandemic when the skies are bluer than they've been in decades, when people are able to breathe the air in cities that were choked when um, animals are roaming the streets saying, oh, those people are out of the way. You know, see those photos of lions kind of sauntering down a highway in Kenya, like, hey, okay, now we're taking back over again. You yeah, know? And, the, yeah. and the coyotes in New York, it's like, okay, baby, life will come back. And it takes just a moment. There's such a force of life. And I see it in California because we have cycles of forest fires. They've gotten exacerbated by the climate change, but they've always been part of the cycle. And if you go into a forest, a redwood forest, which has been swept through and kind of underbrush cleared out by a fire, it looks like a holocaust. There's Everything is burned and dead and black. Mm-hmm. And after one season of rain, you walk back and already there are thousands, millions of green shoots. And in two years, the bushes and the little trees, you almost wouldn't know there was a fire. That's how powerful Mm. is that life force. And it's in us in the same way. Right. That same force is looking out your eyes. (laughs) It it is. I mean, and, and you know, you might say, well, I'm having a depressed day and I don't feel any force and, you know, things. But if you step off the curb and a car comes around the corner really fast as if to hit you, your body will get your ass back on the curb. Yeah. You know, it just will because it's not just the survival instinct, but it's actually the the deeply ingrained love of life itself. 
yeah. that's within you. It's very dark, uh, so I hesitate to say it, but I will say it. Maybe it's helpful. There are a lot of people that attempted suicide. It didn't work. And they said the first thought they had when they jumped off the bridge was like, nope, like this was a horrible mistake. And I know that's dark, but there's something beautiful about that too, which is what you're saying. And of course they survived and then they, and they worked with that feeling and it took them to another spot. Which well, I- here's another piece of that to add. And that is when people are suicidal, um, there's actually a deep intelligence in it. They realize in some way that their life is simply not working, that the burden of pain that they brought to others and brought to themselves or that they have to bear is too much in that family, in the work situation, in their body, whatever it is they're, they're trying to escape. But the problem is that they've made a mistake of levels. They think that it's their body that has to die and their body isn't the problem. Something has to die where they live, their identity, who they are, their job, their families. Something does have to die and let go of in some painful, terrible way in order for something new to happen. But it's not the body. And so it's really a call for a kind of death rebirth that's asked in in the heart that says, this is untenable. I need a reset. I need to let all of this die, however painful it is, and start again. I think that is so beautiful. I heard that put similarly where somebody was like, so many uh, people coming of age, adolescent age, 18, 19, 20, 21, uh, will become suicidal. And he's like, they don't realize that part of them does have to die. It's their young ways. It's, it's, there's, there's a phoenix rising, like another part of you needs to continue to the other side of the bridge. And part of you does jump off, but it's not your body. It's not who you are. You just put that so beautifully. I love that. I love that. Um, Boy, you made me think of something else, and I, I forgot it as I was telling you that other thing. Why don't we start at the start, though, with Jack Cornfield, a little bit about who you are for people who don't know. I, I know a little bit about your story. I know that you went into the Peace Corps, but why don't you, to, to put a point to it, how you found meditation, how you found Buddhism? Well, um, I grew up in a very painful family. Um, had three brothers. My dad, who was a, a biophysicist who taught in medical school and helped create, design some of the first artificial hearts and did space medicine, was also mentally ill. And so he was paranoid and often quite violent. And he would beat my mother or throw her down the stairs or all kinds. I won't tell the stories. When I got to college, you know, we all survived somehow, all that. Um, I discovered that while I had a fine Ivy League education, nobody taught me how to deal with my own anger and rage. I was I just suppressed it because I wasn't going to be like my father. Nobody taught me about what a loving relationship would be like because my parents didn't have it. Nobody taught me how to deal with my own emotions of fear, or my longing, my vision, um, what nourishes it's as if I had half an education. Um, and I was at first in, you know, doing organic chemistry and all the things to perhaps become a physician. And then I karmically by accident, by interest took a, a, a brilliant course in Eastern philosophy from this professor who um, come from the de- department at Harvard to teach and, 
he would sometimes sit cross-legged on the desk and talk about the teachings of the Buddha saying that there's suffering in life, and I'm nodding, yeah, there's causes and there's an end to it. There's a path to the end of it. And I sat up and I said, really? You know? <laughs> and so I began to study this stuff because I needed it. It wasn't theoretical at all. It was like, how do I understand this? And how do I understand the suffering of the world around me? Because here I was again in a very privileged um, place at Dartmouth College. And there was a lot of unhappiness and a lot of, you know, difficulty, not just mine. And um, so I began to study this. And it didn't hurt that it was in the 60s and I became a hippie and dropped acid and went to the <laughs> summer of love. And I go, well, oh, yeah, there's a whole other world. What is the order of that? Did the class come before becoming a hippie? Uh, the, the class? You mean? The, 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 the yeah, philosophy yeah, class. The Asian studies came first. I brought my, you know, my Chinese language flashcards with me to uh, hate Ashbury. There. And I, <laughs> you know. I was both interested, but I thought, well, this is a cool thing. Maybe I'll get some girls this way or something. I have to, I couldn't be more interested. First of all, your story is very similar to Ramdas. I remember he talked about, he's like, well, I wanted it. He was like, I was looking for it. Yeah. And he was like, clearly we must be it because we're the Harvard professors and we're in the, we're having high tea. I always remember him sort of being proud that they had the high tea and they wore the jackets and they, and he had this plane and all the fancy things and he was like but nobody seemed to have it like it was all uh theater it was pretending like they had it and when he got a taste as you did of the of the deeper stuff of the heart stuff he just couldn't he couldn't turn away but what i want to slow you down on it because i'm very interested on the first time you did uh take acid or anything like that in conjunction with your study i think that had to be pretty revelatory it, it was let me tell you <laughs> um, about a particular trip I've had a number, but I arrived in San Francisco for the summer of love. And, um, there were some girls I knew from Bennington college who'd rented an apartment up on Potrero Hill in this sort of windy whitewashed part of the city. That's it's beautiful light and, and so forth. And I came in, I'd hitchhiked across the country and then did some mountain climbing. I did climb Mount Rainier and did some ice climbing and it was partly because I had a terrible breakup with my girlfriend. It was all unconscious. So I decided I would climb a mountain, you know, to the, the Jack, America. I, I love it. I didn't put the two together. I just did it, you know. Yeah, nobody had taught you your pre-therapy. You hadn't no, learned how to deal with your feelings. I just did what I did. So I, <laughs> so I arrive at this apartment, hitchhike down to San Francisco, and these two girls and the couple of guys that are with them are sitting at the table, and there's this, they're doing something very small. They're, this little mound of white powder and a bunch of empty caps and they're capping acid. Someone had given them some LSD and they were distributing it um, as I had gotten at other times from like the, the um, psychedelic research society in Cambridge, two blocks from um, Harvard square. Um, you could go up and they'd say, how many sugar cubes do you want? And how many people are you going to turn on? And they just give it to you. That was from wow. How, anyway, how did that work? So, so <laughs> that was in the day when it was still legal, right? So, oh, this is where they're by, like, uh, yeah. like uh, it was still legal. They're trying to turn on the world. And wow. So, so they said, "Here, take a cup. Try a couple of these." So they hand me two caps of very strong LSD, and um, 
I start to trip and everything starts to dissolve, including myself. And they say, let us show you the city. So they bundle me up in this raccoon coat. It's a little chilly in the summer in San Francisco, as Mark Twain noted. My coldest, <laughs> uh, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. And they took me out to this Volkswagen bus that had one of those kind of crinkly tops that you could put aside so you could open the whole top up. And they stood me up, so I was holding on to it, tripping on acid, and they drove me around the city. Here's the Golden Gate Bridge. Here's Coit Tower, you know, and I'm like tripping like crazy. And that was my introduction to San Francisco. Wow. Now, I have to say, beside hippie tripping, which was its own thing, you know, taking the uh, acid punch at the Fillmore and, you know, dancing and things, I've actually had some really profound experiences with psychedelics. And it's not that I suggest that people use it lightly. I think people can misuse it. And we're Americans. We know how to misuse anything. You right. know? But um, in the right set and setting where you're quiet and tended and maybe even eye shades or music and things, and you do it as, an, as I've done, interior trip profound opening and revelations and death and rebirth and visions of luminosity and beyond that a sense that there a, a sense of the mystery in ways that you ordinarily don't get and i when i came back from the monastery i became good friends with stanislav Grof, who was the last legitimate lsd researcher of that era he was at Johns Hopkins before that was closed down. And he was doing this project in which <clears throat> he and his medical colleagues were giving LSD to terminal cancer patients. And he gave me a series of videos. We were kind of collaborating and did end up working together for 40 years doing interesting things. And I remember a, a video of this coal miner from West Virginia named Jesse who had cancer metastasized through his body so it was a little hard to speak um and he was in tremendous pain and more than that in great great fear um and he was given the lsd and blindfolds and some beautiful music to listen to for you know eight hours and people holding his hand and tending him anything he needed and then it showed the blindfold coming off and him talking and he said First, his face looked like he'd been reborn. Wow. It was so smooth. He said, I don't, I don't have any pain in my body now. And then he went on and he said, and I don't know what this stuff you gave me is, but I saw God. He said, I know that I'm God, that we're all God, and I'm not afraid to die no more because I seen it. I seen it. And you see this coal miner, you know, who's gone from the most agonizing physical pain and fear of death, understanding that who we are is not our body, that we are the consciousness that was born in our body that's timeless awareness. And when a baby is born, our first gesture is love, mm -hmm. you know, and the hand we hold of someone that we care about when they're dying is equally a gesture of love. Love, in the end, is who we are. We are timeless awareness and love itself. Mm. That's the nature of our consciousness. And Jesse had the veils taken away, mm. um, and it changed everything for him. 
even the the veils coming off it, it's like a baby coming out you know what i mean exactly. it, it had that it exactly. has that feeling to me yeah. what a what a be- we can end the podcast now that's it. that's it that is so beautiful i love that so much it actually brought to mind what i forgot what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about death is that baptism the christian baptism is a death uh enactment it's, it's absolutely a- there are, there are all kinds of rituals and we've in our culture we've lost the yes the meaning of ritual and how to ritually grieve or honor in all kinds of ways. And I'll tell you, I mean, ritual can be so simple and at the same time, so powerful like water to anoint someone and bless them or water of baptism or fire to light a candle or, 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 you know, or air the words, the song or the prayer. Rituals are the most ancient language, even before our words, we had gestures with one another. It's this, it's this elemental language. And so I remember working with my colleagues, Michael Mead, Mali Doma Somme, a West African shaman and medicine man, Luis Rodriguez, who's one of the great Latin poets who wrote La Vida Loca, My Gang Days in L.A., which he says proudly is the most stolen book in high school libraries across the country. <laughs> and, and we were doing a retreat for for a bunch of young men who were coming out of street gangs in LA and Oakland, Chicago, you know, and they sit back with their hoods up and their hats on like, man, you're going to read me a poem. You're going to tell me some kind of myth or meditation or something. I'm out on the street. People got nine millimeters shooting each other. You got to give me something better than that. Mm. So we said, well, Before we can even talk together, there are too many, there are too many beings in this room um, who haven't been held with respect. So we want to ask you to go out in the parking lot and pick up a stone for every young person you know who's been killed. And we're going to light this candle and put it on the table here, just a simple candle. And when you come back in, put the stone down by the candle and simply say their name. And some of these kids would come in and their hands were full of stones. No young person should know that many dead people. Mm. And then they would say, this is for Tito, and this is for RJ, and this is for homegirl. And, and pretty soon there was a big pile of stones around this candle. And everybody sat down and the hoods came off and the hats came off. Said, okay, this is a place where we can really talk about what's you know, what's true for what's, what's really going on. So ritual is a very, very powerful thing, whether it's a baptism or a candle. If we take this, the, 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 the purpose of ritual to meet one another, and this is the kind of language. So after I graduated Dartmouth, I I, I wanted to learn these kind of things. I want to learn meditation. I want to learn the inner life. How do you deal with fear? How do you deal with your own aggression and anxiety? How do you deal with self-judgment and judging others? How do you deal with a love relationship? So I wonder, are there still great Zen masters? Are there still these wise teachers? And I asked the Peace Corps, I didn't want to go into the Vietnam, you know, and, and shoot people in, in the military. So I asked the Peace Corps to send me to a Buddhist country. And they ended up sending me to Thailand, and I went work right on the Mekong River on the border of Laos and Thailand and Cambodia. Um, 
right where there had been fighting and and things like that. And for two years, I worked on village uh, tropical medicine teams, giving out medicine for malaria and various other things like that. But I also, during that time, looked around and found a really wise teacher and and began to study and learn from him. And then when it was done, I said, I'm going to go and live with this teacher and became a Buddhist monk for some years to, to do the inner training. Mm. So that's, he wanted a little, little I do. And isn't it strange, you know, I, I've talked before about how every superhero story starts with their parents dying. Um, and on a certain level, they're dealing with attachment. Like I'm always like struck that they become powerful when their parents go away and then they almost lose their power when their girlfriend or if you're Spider-Man, Aunt May, some new attachment is threatened and you have to like reconcile your role as a superhero and your attachment to your uh, people. The reason I say that is because here you are sort of in an uncanny position of freedom to go to Thailand. First of all, you had to have the initiative and do that. But then to stay was in part because you had this family situation that wasn't wonderful to come back to. Like, so did that afford you a sort of liberation, something you wouldn't have asked for, but you were able to say, I'm going to stay. Perhaps so. I mean, I think in some way that's partly the task anyway, as we mature. And even in cultures where you have to stay in the family system, there's some huge rite of passage where you're not seen as a child anymore, where you become an empowered adult, whether it's among the Maasai in initiation and a young man goes out with a spear to kill a lion or a young woman who's, you know, 16 years old gives birth in a circle of grandmothers to the Mm -hmm. first new baby in that community, you know, and in those days giving birth was a really dangerous thing, your life and the life of the baby, all of that. And so you go through an initiation. We've lost that in many ways in our culture. There's a little bit people going in the military or college, but it's not seen as the initiation that an elder would guide that really brings that that kind of um, fruition. And so instead you see like gang kids on the street imitating or trying to initiate themselves, which you can't do. All right, I'm going to go and shoot someone to show you I'm a man you know, and being tremendously destructive um, in it because they want to prove themselves and become part of the family in a new way. There's a longing in us that's so deep to be connected and to belong. And part of initiation is to be, is, is that the, the beauty and the power of that young person is honored and recognized and said, yes, we see who you are. Yeah. And and we validate you and we welcome you back, not as a child, but as somebody who's part of, you know, the community in some deeper way. And I saw, I'm going to turn the conversation now. I saw um, our, again, our dear friend Ramdas, who you had wanted to talk about, um, especially, you know, the last retreat that he taught, I think of, um, when he was... He'd been very sick after his stroke and many kinds of illnesses and difficulties. And he could, um, in certain ways, he could hardly talk, not many sentences. But he sat up and he wanted to bless everybody. We were chanting and hearing his teachings and watching 
videos of when he was more articulate and he would teach as best as he could in dialogue. It was, it was all very moving because he could have let go, but he said, no, he said, um, I, I think the question is what would love have me do today? Mm. And his answer was always was love more to love. So he said, I'm going to do it. You know, like to my last breath, I want to do this. And people filed by him at the end of this retreat where they were each going to receive a little wrist set of beads with a thread from his guru's blanket. And he was going to bless them. Often he, in earlier years, he would actually hand it and do a blessing. But here he was so weak, he couldn't hand it to them. They were, they, they were given it by another. But they stood in front of him. And he did what in India is sometimes described, he offered what in India is sometimes described uh, as the glance of mercy. Um, the look from a guru or a master or a teacher, you know, where she or he looks at you with so much love, that everything that you thought about yourself just falls away and you remember who you really are. You remember that secret beauty that was born into you as a child. And he would look, gaze at each person with so much love. People would stand there and just start to weep, like they could barely take it in. And it rewires your being. It rewires the DNA in your cells because something in you realizes, oh, I am worthy of this love. I have it and I am it in some way. And this was really his blessing. It was that recognizing whatever was coming out of him inside of ourselves. He had, he had that ability to wake that up in us. I know exactly what you're talking about. It was truly lovely. When, when did you meet Ram Das? I'm sure you get that question a lot. I, I met if- Ram Das in 1972, <clears throat> after I'd come back from being in the Buddhist monastery. Um, and at first I was in, New England, and I was starting graduate school. I didn't know what else to do. I'd been a student my whole life in psychology. I thought, well, I'll study psychology and figure out what the hell happened to me and all this Buddhist training. I'm going to (laughs) understand. And I met um, a mutual friend, Dan Goldman, the guy who wrote Emotional Intelligence. And he introduced me to a circle of friends at the house of Dr. Um, David McClellan and his wife, Mary. David was the chairman of psychology, social relations at Harvard, the guy who both hired Ramdas and Tim Leary and then later fired them. But their big Cambridge house was a kind of a uh, somewhere between a soiree and a spirit, informal spiritual center. And everybody, you know, the Lama Chogyam Trumpa and Ramdas and Krishnamurti and the spiritual figures of that time would end up in their living room with various other people around. And so I, I met this whole coterie of people. And um, that's where I met Chogyam Trumpa and was invited to help be part of the founding faculty at Naropa Buddhist University. Um, and um, when Ramdas and I talked some about the training I'd had, you know, uh, and then I met this other young man, Joseph Goldstein, who'd been training in India um, and was helping Ramdas teach. We all became um, really good friends. Mm. And Ramdas came 
as a student to sit at the retreats that Joseph and I and Sharon were teaching. Um, and I think partly because he knew he needed, he needed the meditation, but also it was a really beautiful form of honoring and support of what we were doing. And that began, you know, 45 years of a loving and deep friendship among a whole community of us. Wow. Sharon, the Sharon you mentioned to Sharon Salzberg, who's, who's been on the show twice now, just to give people some context. Were you there? One of my favorite Ramdas things is, I think it's 12 hours long, Love, Service, Devotion, which is the series of lectures he gave on the Bhagavad Gita at Naropa. Oh, yeah. Those were remarkable lectures. Yeah. yeah those were, were you there? Of course. That was the first, <laughs> that was the first year. and um it was also interesting because the setup at naropa the two most celebrated teachers were ramdas who had thousands of followers by that point in 1974 after writing be here now that best spiritual bestseller and lama chobyam trumparimbache who wrote cutting through spiritual materialism and others and was a a a linguistic genius in many ways explaining Tibetan Buddhism in ways that never had been done before. And they would alternate and Ramdas would have us chant and sing and open our hearts. And it was a very, very loving presentation of what it means to love and serve and remember whatever is holy in your life and so forth. And all kinds of practices that we did. And Joseph Goldstein and I did teachings and practices and compliment to that. And on alternate nights, Chogyam Trumpa would get up in a very much more serious demeanor, sometimes wearing a suit coat and tie, and talk about the Buddha's teaching is not just singing and dancing, it's the noble truths of suffering and its causes, you know, and it was a, it was very, um, they were playing off one another. It was yes. very great and deep. And people would kind of go back and forth. Okay, suffering, we have to learn how to meditate. We have to overcome, you know, all of the ways that we get caught and so forth and find a more dignified way to live. And then Ramdas would say, sing, love one another, dance. and Sloppy bhakti. Every other, every other night. So it was, it was a great show. That's incredible. What, what was it like? I always think, I've listened to those lectures probably four times the whole way through. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm always wondering, what was it like? Were you hanging out with Ramnas in the interim, like during the day? Were you seeing him at lunch? We, like- I mean, we all, on the faculty, we spent time together. Some of it, you'll be very sad to know, was in faculty meetings. <laughs> <laughs> you see, even when you go to the monastery or the temple, meetings follow you. <laughs> yeah. You know, and what do we do? And we were all getting educated. For example, the way we started to teach, Ramdas included, and Joseph and I, was very patriarchal because the translation and the language and Buddhism and Indian and Thai and Burmese society were very patriarchal. Men over women, the monks were revered more than the nuns, the language was he and this, and it was all, you know, and um, that didn't fly. (laughs) and not only did it not fly it was toxic Mm. but needless to say some of us clueless guys really needed our our it pushed right into our face as it was you know and 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 um 
I can remember a moment where Mirabai Bush, who is also a wonderful teacher and mm-hmm. friend of Ramdas and so forth, who was on the faculty, was saying in the faculty meeting to Ramdas and Chogyam Trumpa and all, you know, um, women are not being honored here. The teachers, the feminine, and so forth. And Chogyam Trumpa replied, but from the deepest level of the Dharma, there is no man and no woman. We're just, you know, conscious beings and you're making a false distinction. And Mirabai said, if that's a false distinction, then why are 92% of the faculty, you know, and 100% of the administration men? You yeah. know, why are the women doing the dishes in the, if that's Mirabai is it, was, a it, was, it was, it was like, it was, you know, you yes. were watching this, this is the, the, uh, the Zen master answered the Lama and um, wow. points scored for the women. Wow. You know, really points scored for consciousness itself. Well, isn't that, a, that's a trap. I mean, I've seen people try to sidestep real issues of identity, of gender, of sexuality by saying the cop out of like, right. it's, it's all, we're all one. Yeah. Well, right. we're all, if we're really all one, try not stopping at a red light and see how long you live. Right. You know? Right. There are there are different levels, and on one level we're all one. And and, and as Ramdas used to say, you need to remember your true nature and your social security number. Right. But that that on another level we live in a world of duality, of birth and death, and pleasure and pain, and joy and sorrow, and gain and loss. Everybody does, and this has to be honored with the heart um, to love it all as it is, in 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 all its imperfections, in what Oscar Wilde called the the tainted glory of it. Mm. Now, one of the gifts that Ramdas offered during that time, I remember, was um, on the full moon that first summer in July was maybe it was Guru Purnima Day or some very important Hindu holiday, and so we had a huge bonfire out on the plains where you could see the whole rise of the Rocky Mountains, which you can see when you're in Boulder. There's this huge wall of mountains, you know, and the full moon and a couple of thousand of us out singing and chanting. But before people could enter the terrain or the area of the singing and chanting and prayer and and making offerings, if you carried anything in your heart, that needed to be forgiven or released in some way, then you were steered in a direction where it was kind of set up as a kind of a tent or a place. Um, And there were priests and Ramdas was the high priest, if you will, in the priestly role. We're just talking about it as an archetype and people would come and they would confess what they needed to forgive what they needed to let go of, what they felt regret or shame or fear or anger about. And after doing so, they would get a blessing. And then they were able to go and join the prayer. And Ramdas just did it for a long time because part of his life was really the life of the tender of the hearts. Mm. And maybe you could use that word in its double entendre, in its double meaning. You know, he wanted the heart to be tender, and he tended it. Mm. I, th- I was reading one of my favorite spiritual teachers, uh, Richard Rohr. Uh, I don't know. Have you heard of Richard Rohr? No. R-O- R-O-H-R. He's a Franciscan, and he talks about how 
certainly it's not always done properly, but the Catholic practice of confession can be such a beautiful thing. And he said that there are therapists that envy what can be accomplished in sometimes 45 seconds in a confessional booth because of the archetypes that are at play. We put so much stock in the priest. And this is, this is, um, again, the power of ritual. Mm-hmm, that's that right. ritualized as Ram Dass did. Again, it was 30 seconds or a minute. And I know it in 45 years of leading retreats, because I've also trained as a therapist and done years of that. And people would come in and see me for 10 minutes. Yeah. And magic would happen. I mean, mm-hmm. things would get released and freedom. And I would tell the stories to other therapists and they'd say, how do you do that? And I said, well, part of it is that it's set up as a ritual. But also part of it is that they spent the last whole week meditating and getting quiet and seeing what's in their mind and coming somehow into touch with what's in them, with their fears and longings and love and capacity. So when they come in, they're present in a way that, you know, you get somebody coming to therapy and they just drove in the parking lot and they, you know, finished shopping. And they're in it, full it costume. The hour yeah. Just to even get in their body. There's that line from James Joyce where he wrote of one character, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> and and half of what we do is just to get somebody here so that all the parts are in the room together. That's so right. what the priest does, what that beautiful Richard Rohr does, and is again, it's like lighting that candle. With yes. the it's, it's creating an, a ritual space in which there's a safety and a forgiveness and a possibility to hold our humanity yes. in the field of love. And, and it's so powerful. Um, I'll tell you a story. Mm. Uh, and it's one I tell regularly because it's, it's one of the stories that's meant the most to me in my life, just as Ramdas would tell certain formative stories over and over again. Mm. Um, I'd lived in a monastery in the forest doing some very intensive meditation training in these forest monasteries with uh, another monk from Cambodia named Gosananda. And Gosananda um, was also a great scholar. He spoke 15 languages and a dear-hearted man. And when the Cambodian genocide happened under the Khmer Rouge, he was outside of the country or he would have been killed. And in fact, his village temple was burned and 19, all 19 members of his family had been killed and mm. half the people he knew had been slaughtered. And people fled. They ran across the border into Thailand and the UN set up these huge refugee camps for hundreds of thousands of refugees escaping the killing fields. So as soon as he could, Gosananda went to the refugee camps as one of the few monks who'd survived um, to help. He later became the head of all of Cambodian Buddhism because he was so honored for what he had done. Um, And there we were in one camp with 50,000 or 100,000 people in these little tiny bamboo huts on a very hot, dry plain surrounded by a barbed wire fence by the United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees. And um, Gosananda asked the UNHCR, can we open a Buddhist temple here for people who've lost everything? 
and got permission. And it was very simple. It was a great big wooden platform with a roof over it and a little altar that had a Buddha on it and a big gong and some flowers. And then he said, let's open the temple this Saturday or whatever. But we heard from the Khmer Rouge underground in the camp that they threatened if anyone went to the temple. Later on, when they were released, they would be shot and killed. So we didn't know whether people would come and went through the camp ringing this big gong, announcing that the temple would open. And 25,000 people poured into the central square and sat there. And here's Gosananda with his whole family killed, looking out at the faces of people with so much trauma, you know, who'd survived just barely, a grandmother and two surviving grandchildren, an uncle and one niece, and the faces and the eyes you could see of people who were still in shock. And I thought, all right, what is he going to say? You know, what do you say? And he looked out across the sea of faces and put his hands together and began to chant in Cambodian and in Pali like Sanskrit. The, some of the very first verses of the Buddha, which goes, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And he started to chant it over and over in Cambodia and Khmer and in, you know, Pali Sanskrit over and over. And pretty soon people put their hands together. They hadn't heard these prayers in some years. Um, and they began to chant it, and after a while, 25,000 people were chanting, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. And I realized that he was speaking a truth that was even bigger than their sorrows. And it was an extraordinary thing. And later, for 15 years, he was nominated for the Nobel Prize many times. He led people on foot. He said, you can't go back in a bus or, you know, in a truck or something. You have to reclaim your land step by step. And again and again, he would lead a thousand or two thousand people chanting, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. Um, step by step, all the way back to the village, he said, so with each step, you reclaim your land and you reclaim your heart. Wow. Thank so you. I had these kind of trainings. Yes. You know, and then came back here. <laughs> You are such a gift, Jack. I love I love that so much. I did one of your meditations. All the, we keep coming back to the importance of a temple and a place and a ritual and the importance of even giving value. We can know that it's all one and it's, it's all a mystery and it's all just Leela, it's all just play. But it, we also have to honor the form and honor the suffering and, and honor the love and honor the relationship. And you were doing this it's on YouTube for anybody interested. You can go to jackcornfield.com. You have all of them there. And you, it's a very short meditation. You take us to a temple on a magic carpet and it's a healing temple. And I was thinking afterwards, I was like, it's interesting that a temple is no more holy. We can get intellectual with it. A temple is no more holy than any other place, right? We could say that. And yet, because it is, it is. Does that make sense? It like isn't. Absolutely. It isn't, and it I is. I mean, well, that's, <laughs> and this is, that's because we live in a realm of paradox. You could say a child is no more holy than a tree, you know? 
Yes. Or, or than a stone. I mean, in a way, everything is a mystery that's come out of the birth of existence itself. Um, and it's all sacred. And those who are in touch, whether it's in the indigenous cultures or the great poets and musicians or, you know, the mystics, um, or any of us, when we've had that moment making love or walking high in the mountains or taking psychedelics or, you know, doing some meditation or, you know, there are those moments or, or having a near death experience and getting through it. And you come back and you say, oh, God, this world is holy. Every leaf is full of light. Yeah. The leaves on the trees are like pages in the scriptures, someone wrote. So one truth is that. Um, and then love must be fulfilled in the minute particulars, said William Blake, um, in the particulars of this child and this tree. Mm. Um, and in that way, a temple is built as a place to remind us. When you go in the Cathedral of Chartres, you know, this enormous, magnificent structure, it's there to show you that there's something bigger than your daily worries and your small sense of self, that there's a vastness that's who you really are. When you go in a temple in Bali, there's no roof. It's the, it's the stars of the sky over the temple that remind you are part of this vastness. And in some way, these are all our human rituals to remind us uh, of, of who we really are. Now, in, yeah. yeah. So to follow up on two things you said, first, um, practice is really important and helpful. It's one thing to walk in the mountains or make love or drop acid or have a near-death experience or, you know, a mystical experience and, and know that you're not just this separate sense of self. But to sustain it and live it, to embody it, to live from what would love have me do today, requires for almost everyone some form of practice, some time when you quiet the mind and tend the heart and listen deeply, which is really what meditation is about. It's not about a state. It's about opening and deep listening. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so on my website, there's lots of guided meditations and classes. There's also for people interested in teaching, there's a beautiful teacher training. But most importantly, there are these practices that you can make your own and turn into uh, a part of your day just as you, you know, brush your teeth or just as you eat or just as you take a walk. And it's not meant to be a grim duty. All right, now I've exercised and now I've, you know, I'm on my diet and now I've gone therapy and now I have to meditate. It's actually meant to be an invitation to the heart to stop and listen <sighs> take a deep breath or 10 and go, what really matters? How is my body feeling? What does my body need to be mm. cared for this human body? How's my heart doing? Oh God, there's so much sadness from the epidemic or grief, so much anxiety. Can I hold that anxiety with compassion and tenderness? And you begin to close your eyes and bring that tender awareness to your own body mm. and to your own heart. And as you do, then you can also ask, what does my heart need to help me get through this? And then more deeply, you can ask, what is it that I can bring back to the world from this place of understanding? Mm. I try to 
when I don't feel like meditating, I try to go like, what is unattractive about sitting there and no matter what you think, allowing it, loving it and giving it space. Like instead of thinking of it as something rote that I have to drill oh, myself yeah, 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 you're into right. hypnosis. But actually resistance, you don't have to get over resistance. I'm resisting meditating. I'm resist. You simply have to get curious. When there's, <laughs> when there's resistance, it means something's cooking. Okay. I, I don't want to sit still. Fine. What is it that's cooking? What would it be so hard to sit with? Oh my God, I've got so much grief from the news I was watching or the neighbors who lost everything or the people or my, I've got so much fear because my business is collapsing or my, my friends have lost this or, or this person I know is sick or I've got um, so much uncertainty and I can't bear it. And you get curious and say, oh, this is why it's hard to sit. Fine, let me see if I can hold this with loving awareness and with compassion because this is natural it's human you're only human mm. and as you hold it with compassion say i'm not even going to sit i'm just going to hold that which is difficult with compassion already you're doing a deep meditation beautiful beautiful i love that so much yeah ramdas used to say uh give it space it's yes. like you, and, and for some reason, that is exactly what it feels like. It's so hard. You, of course, are a master at it. I love how you articulate meditation and your teachings on it. To give that dark, purpley, swirly, spherical space words is so difficult. But when you, when you feel yourself really clinging to your anger and identifying with it, something about giving it space, like letting it be and the... giving space means that you can actually say, all right, I want you to get bigger because there's always a little hope you're going to get rid of that sucker. Let go away and say, nope, I'm going to, I'm going to have the courage to yep. say, let me feel you fully. Show me how big you are. And the anger turns into rage and it's mm. like a tornado or it's nuclear. And you say, all right, show me how big you are because the compassionate heart is even bigger. Mm. You see how big it is or the pain you have. All right, show me how. And when you invite it, to open and and let me feel let me see how big you are mm. it gets bigger and bigger and then in its own way not because you want it to or do anything it starts to soften because you're no longer resisting it you're actually this is the mechanism of giving it space that's right and the poet hafez writes fear is the cheapest room in the house i'd like to see you in better living conditions uh. <laughs> and so that's the contracted state. Let's open the room up to the sky and see how big the fear wants to be. Oh, it's not fear. It's terror. My whole body's in terror. All right. And you name it. Terror, terror. Show me how terrifying is terror, terror, overwhelming. I feel like I'm dying, 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 dying. And then, you know, 20 seconds later, dying, dying, dying. The thought is, I wonder what I should have for lunch because the mind has no pride. And things start to stop. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, I, I, you know, I felt the fear, I felt the death. Now we're on to the next thing, and it liberates you. Yes, first the terror, then the lunch. <laughs> I love that. I somebody, I forget who, I, forgive me, but they taught me the technique. If I feel this way forever, that's okay. And for yes, some that's reason, another beautiful one. To, no more resistance. Yeah. yeah, another way to do it. And so I want to change. I want to change themes. Yes, please. Um, because we're in the pandemic, 
and you know it is we're in the middle of it or maybe near the beginning we don't even know it's so uncertain but it's already not only caused enormous amount of illness and death um there's the you know the medical suffering of it but there's also you know the economic problem that yeah really a, an economic issue if you will it's not just a health issue and we need wellness and we need to connect um but there's one other thing it's not just a health or an economic dilemma we're actually in the midst of a moral dilemma mm-hmm. and it's highlighted that of a spiritual dilemma how do we care for one another in this culture who has and who doesn't who gets and who doesn't do you know um do we have a set of morals that guide us as human beings and as a society um or are we guided only by each person for themselves mm. you know or each nation for itself i have and, that written down i think this is a crisis of capitalism it's like we it's voted in, yeah we yeah. voted in trump remember the people i remember some people were like oh he's going to run the country like a business and he is yeah, if you're on life support, I don't. I want my mother deciding what they're going to do with me, not Walmart. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, profit over people is not a good model, and I think we're all seeing that. Yeah, exactly. It, it is a crisis of capitalism, and it's a crisis of our um, a moral crisis, really, of our values. Mm. And one of the things that's really evident, even though we're now using technology more than ever is that no amount of technology, computers and internet and space technology and biotechnology and nanotechnology, you know, is going to save us from continuing warfare and racism and, and uh, environmental destruction. Um, those things continue. They can even be exacerbated by it mm. because the root of warfare and racism and climate destruction and so forth the roots are in the human heart mm. and they really are in either we respond to the world with greed and foster hatred and divisiveness and fear and ignorance, or we respond with wisdom and clarity. We respond instead of with hatred, with love, instead of greed, we respond with mutual care mm. um, and mutual support. And so the outer developments of humanity, which are stunning, which are amazing at this point, where you have, you know, the great library of Alexandria in your cell phone, in your pocket, in your pocket, along with, you know, 22 million cat videos or whatever, but you have everything, (laughs) um, that the outer developments now have to be matched by the inner development of humanity or things will get worse. We are, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said at one point, a nation of nuclear giants and ethical infants. Mm. And so the the real call for us, yes, is to be activists in our way, to contribute, but to actually revision what is a caring society. And that caring society can grow through all the, you know, best aspects of capitalism, individuals creating things, but it's got to be compassionate capitalism. It has to be capitalism based on the values that we care for one another and that we all compete 
in, in our creative ways, we find creative ways to do that. Mm. I, I wonder what you'll think of this. I, I watched this. Dave Chappelle gave a graduation speech some years ago where he talked about the difference between good versus bad and better versus worse. And he was making the point that most people are just going like, is this better for me or worse for me? Or is it actually good or actually bad? And I found that really convicting. A lot of people are just like, well, a pizza would be better when we don't really have any connection to the cattle industry or whatever that might be, or the people that are delivering it or the, or the corporation that's delivering it. I'm not saying we have to overthink everything. What we've lost, as you said, any sense of ethics because capitalism doesn't really care about ethics. It just cares about better, not worse, better, 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 more profit, more profit, not what's right or what's wrong. And it's true that it can be changed because it's a collective agreement or construction. You know, the laws that say a corporation has to be treated like a person, you know, well, is that that's a law. It doesn't have to be there. Or that the profit of a corporation is the, the highest value or the only value. We could, as a society, decide, and many people are talking about it, that the value of business is both to succeed, to become profitable, and to care for its workers and the environment and the people and the community it serves. And those could be paired values, and they are in some companies. Right. And and when they are, something different happens. And I was talking to um, my my friend, Bill Ford, who runs Ford Motors, and I, I just respect him a lot. He was an early environmentalist in an industry that fought tooth and nail against it. Hmm. And he stood up for that. And now Ford has turned some of its factories into making protective equipment, face masks and, you know, ventilators and so forth. Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, they're doing it for free. They're giving it away. Um, but what I know that he does is he also um, makes a personal call to the families of people of the employees who've gotten sick and died from the COVID virus. Wow. And so, you know, I, I see the possibility. I, you know, I've seen it on lots of levels. We can do both. Right. And not only can we do both, but it, 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 it would make a magnificent society and a magnificent world. And we are, we're ready for a reset and a regeneration. And this is a time where we can rebuild keeping in mind climate change, keeping in mind social justice so that children, when they're born, are, um, are invited into a society that says, wherever you're born, we care for you. Yeah. And I'll tell you another story. Mm. Um, I was at San Quentin Prison um, with my good friend Jacques Verdun, who's run the prison project first. It was called the Inside Prison Project or Inside Out Different in San Quentin and in many prisons. And he does this remarkable work. And I'd been on the, I actually been the president of his board at one point, but anyway, it was a graduation day for a program, a one or two year program called grip guiding rage into power, get a grip. Right. Mm. And so here we are in probably the biggest room in San Quentin. And at one end on this very low stage are 120 men, wearing mortar boards and graduation gowns, like a college graduation and so forth. 
and um, on the other other side in the room are about 300 people who included corrections officials members of the state government and legislator local mayors family members and so forth and the valedictorian of their class stood up and he gave a bit of a little talk about what they'd learned from anger management and mindfulness and yoga and all the things and conflict resolution. And then they all stood up and they read a pledge. He said, we have been violent. He said, we've been violent, man. We've, we've tried to solve our conflicts and our problems through violence. And we have a pledge to make to you. And they all stood up and read a, read a pledge that said, we have been violent men. And from this day forward, we pledge that we will never again use violence to solve our human problems. Mm. So that was very moving. Wow. Um, and then I gave a little talk. Um, I was invited to, and I gave a little talk about uh, that it's never too late to change. And that we, it's never too late that we as human beings always have the opportunity to turn the course of our life and change and renewal as possible and so forth. And then my good friend, Luis Rodriguez, who I mentioned, uh, he'd been the poet laureate of Los Angeles, among many things, this last year or so, got up and he was going to read a poem. And his poems are very kind of deep and intense. Um, he reads them like a Mayan sacrifice because they describe you know, his times on the streets and with the gangs and working with people in prisons and juvie and all these things. And he just tells the truth as it is. Mm. So he's going to read a poem. Um, but as part of the valedictorian street speech, all the men who stood up and said that we've been violent men, they also said one other thing. They said, we want to apologize for you collectively for all the harm we've caused, for the suffering to you, your loved ones, your family, in this day, in our graduation, along with vowing never to be violent again, we apologize for all the harm and suffering that we have caused in, in people's lives and in this world. Mm. So Luis got up and he said, I can't read my poem. He said, I can't read my poem because you all apologize to us. He said, but it's we who need to apologize to you. And he looked at these men and he said, you, almost all of you were born into communities where there was racism, where there was a lot of drug abuse, where you were a child and there was violence around, you know, where you weren't tended and you weren't cared for, you know, and you weren't given the resources and the education and the, the values that every human child should have, you know, and where you were thrown away in many ways he said so it's not you who need to apologize to us but we look at you and we see who you were as children and who you could have been and we owe you a deep apology for what happened to you mm. and the room became silent because he told the truth and mm. then he read his poem and everybody was ready to listen wow that is amazing. It's interesting in all of these stories, the importance of vows and declarations. And I know when I've heard you speak live, you're, you're a big proponent of like, what is something you want to vow? How do you want to start your morning? Every time you read it, I write it down and, and here I am with it not framed on my wall. 
but you have, I, hopefully this rings a bell, but you have a poem that you read about architect of peace. Is that yeah. I, it's from this wonderful poem, poet, Diana Ackerman, who's a friend and it's called school, school prayer. She wrote it um, in response to, well, if there was going to be prayer in a school, what might it be? Hmm. And she writes, in the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, a messenger of wonder, a healer of misery, and an architect of peace. Mm. And... uh, you know that's the language of a poet and and you know i think it was william carlos williams who said you can't get the news from poetry but men and women die every day for lack of what is found there wow the poetry carries the human heart through its voice poetry is the music of language and in this poem she speaks something that's not just the words but an invitation to our to a a deep intention a sacred intention and when i teach like you say i often invite people at the end to quiet themselves and go inside and ask if i were to make a vow if i were to set the compass of my heart today you know what would that be and it might be as simple as i vow to be kind i vow to ask in the morning what would love have me do today? Mm. That would be enough. Wow. It is interesting. You were saying, and that's so well heard for me, that a practice is important. It's fun to talk about the oneness. It's fun to talk about the void. It's fun to listen to Ram Dass's lectures. But it does come down to something that we do that changes how we are and how we perceive reality. And something that Richard Rohr said that I thought you might like, he was like, even if you don't practice, whatever you're doing is a practice. He's like, if you're, without judgment, he's like, if you're looking at uh, a new clip of pornography every day, that is a practice. We have the studies, just like we put monks in MRI machines, we can see what that's doing to your brain. Whatever you're doing is a practice. I think what people like you are saying is let's bring some curiosity, I love that word you use, and some intentionality to that practice. Let's be the architect, like she says, architect of peace. Let's be the architect of our practice and ask ourselves. Because often our practices are um, are really unconscious habits. That's right. You know, and you bring about up pornography or even sexuality as if these things are anathema to a spiritual life, and somehow, but sexuality is part of being human. Right. You know, um, but the question is, you know, can we be? Can we tend it with love? Can we tend ourselves and one another, however we do our sexuality? Right. Can, can we do it in a way that enhances our vitality in our life and our love? Um, and, and, and anything can be used or misused in, of course. in, in a way. Um, Thoughtless you know, pornography versus like eroticism. Eroticism is very powerful and can be very spiritual and beautiful. But the isolation, I think that's what I was drawn to with the pornography example is the image of the person that's alone, that's shut off from other people, that's just letting a machine sort of yeah, tend to them. <laughs> you know, but my, my, my inner sense of it is 
we're a lonely culture. There's a book that was just published called Together by Vivek Murthy, who was the Surgeon General under Barack Obama. Mm. And he said um, that in his research as the U.S. Surgeon General, he found that more than half of what walks through the doors in our clinics and hospitals over the years is not physical illness, is illness of the heart, is emotional problems. You know, and loneliness is a big part of it. We can be electronic, but we can be tremendously isolated. And I don't judge that. I mean, people find their ways to manage it. They have a drink, they have smoke a toke, they do this, they do whatever. Um, but I'm, I'm more interested in the loneliness underneath it. And what would it mean to befriend yourself mm. and bring compassion to that loneliness so that you're not just habitually lost in it or frightened? And what would it mean then when you do so to somehow find a way to reach out and make a connection? Um, even if it's, as the Beatles say, to all the other, all the other lonely people. Yeah. But I, I want to note um, two things, my friend. First of all, um, you know, we've been talking for more than an hour, which I enjoy. Would you like me to lead a, a short meditation or not? Would that be good for your peeps? I would love it. And then the other is, you know, you spend much of your life as a comedian, and um, we really haven't doing, been doing comedy on this one. <laughs> I wonder what you have to say about that. Uh, well, I'm not too worried about that. I, it's funny, because I'm a comedian, this gets classified as a comedy podcast. But if you listen to Sharon or Krishna Das or anybody else, or Richard Rohr, it's not the funniest show in the world. We, I, I've said we stopped being funny 200 episodes ago. So I am not worried about that. When I did your meditation and part of it, which I found strikingly powerful considering that you're just willing it to happen, it's like somebody gives you a gift and you open yeah. a gift. Yeah. And one of, I saw a couple gifts actually, but one of them was just silliness. I know that that's something that I love to give people and just some joy and taking them out of their heads and, and being silly and laughing and playful. So I find a lot of value in that. But the other one was like, I find sharing wisdom to be such, it is a funny reality when you're woke. The when whole you, damn thing is funny. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and, and people, people think that spirituality is somehow about being somber and sober. Yes. Yet, you know, you meet people like, Archbishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama, and there's that wonderful, their book of joy, because they laugh, both of them. How yeah. can you laugh so much when the tragedy of Tibet and apartheid, yes. you saw so many people being killed and around you and so much suffering. And Dalai Lama said, they've taken so much from me. They've taken my country and they've burned our scriptures and, you know, destroyed many of our monasteries. Why should I let them take my joy and happiness? Yeah. You know? So joy becomes, if you make injustice the only measure of your attention somehow um you uh, you lose the the beauty of life itself but isn't that contemplation to to look at a tree and to lose the label tree and to allow a tree i'm not saying it's funny but it is joyful and it does make me laugh and some trees are, <laughs> you look at them some of them are kind of weird and shaped in yes you know, but, I mean, conversation with them and they're funny. I think I watched Jerry Seinfeld's new special recently and I was like, a lot of this has 
spiritual underpinnings to it. And I, I know he was uh, into Buddhism. I don't know if he's necessarily doing that on purpose, but I'm like, the fact that anything exists is funny <laughs> and is sort of like worth talking about. And the fact that none of us are talking about it, instead we're going around talking about pants, is also really funny. Yes. The way that I try to communicate that to my audience is I say, we're on a planet and I'm tired of not talking about it. We're floating in space and we're all going around talking about sandwiches and what shows we're streaming. Nothing wrong with that, but we're floating in infinity. Yes, which, by with, the way, with billions of galaxies and also, kiddos, you're going to die. That's right. You know? And you want to get get real about something? Here you think you exist in the whole galaxy, and it all revolves around you. You know, right. and the trouble with you is you think you have time, but the, the you know the reality is all this is tentative. That's you right. Know? And the whole world, which is all you know, is your world. That's going to end. The, hey, how about that? This is like a dream, like That's a right. rainbow effect. What are you going to do with it? How did this happen? That's what I hear the Dalai Lama when he's saying, I'm laughing. Look at all that tragedy that's happened to him. But there he is in that moment, in that dream, feeling joy. Why wouldn't he? If you're really kind of seeing the puppet strings or at least being liberated from them a little bit, you start to get the smile of the Buddha. That's what, that's what draws me to, to the Buddha. My, my Jesus was always looking so sad on the cross, which, you know, is an artistic interpretation for sure. But then Buddha always looks so happy. That's the cosmic joke. I think Jesus is also probably laughing a lot too. <laughs> I certainly hope so. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, to answer your question, I'm not too worried about it. This is, this is, this is so feeding to me. And what's beautiful about comedy, and I see it happen in the satsang and the teachings at the Ramdas retreat, is when anything can bring everybody together, whether it's a beautiful chant, like the story you told, or laughing, something happens where the individuals are forgotten and one thing starts happening, which so we call I'll, I'll tell you another story and then just a two-minute meditation because I know your audience is already very advanced, so they only need a little... <laughs> Now you're in showbiz. So this this wonderful um, Japan, Japanese professor who was one of the Japanese living treasures, mm. um, uh, but was also a, a student of Carl Jung and Dora Kalf of the um, Jungian tradition, had come to address a, a very big conference in the U.S. of Jungians and Sanpai therapists. And he got up very kind of dapper, lovely, you know, gentleman in his 60s, and he told a joke. And then he paused and he said, let me tell you why I told the joke. He said, in Japan, I would never do this. He said, if I stand up in Japan, what I do is to apologize first. He said, because in Japan, everyone is already together. And when I stand up, I separate myself from it. So I apologize, and we're all together. Wow. But here in the U.S., you're all individuals. And I tell a joke, and everyone laughs, and now we're together, and I can teach you. That's exact. I haven't heard it put so perfectly. And that, I've said this a million times, that's what makes a heckler 
or somebody who's drunk so offensive. It's not just disruptive, it's offensive. We're trying to enter into a state of mass hypnosis. You see this at concerts too, where everyone's clapping or everybody's singing. We're trying to become one thing. So it is a spiritual pursuit. It doesn't matter if I'm talking about sex or taking... But of course, the heckler is part of the one. And if you're in, if you got any chops, which you do, <laughs> you say, isn't this great? You know, our universe provides hecklers as part of comedy. Now you see where I started the podcast, I asked you, is it all in the game? You're now doing that to me. And isn't the heckler part of the game as well? It is. And... There's a part of me that goes, don't you see you're waking us up? We're about to fall asleep and have a great dream together. And you're the guy that keeps going, I like Miller Lite or whatever. Like you're in the way at a certain point. Yeah. That's why mo- most hecklers, you'll get like two, three tries, like two, three shutdowns, and then they'll be taken out. Like that, that any club nowadays is going to take an, a heckler out after a couple tries. But it gives them, the, gives them an identity. They get seen for a moment. Oh, Jack, they if, see you up there and they're jealous and they it, say, and jealousy is like, nobody knows who I am. I have something, I have fucking, something fucking to say. That's right. You, you will hear me. Well, Jack. And I, and I exist. And there's something tremendously, you know, it's painful and, yes. and it undermines all the magic you're trying to create. And it's also really poignant at the same I time. completely agree. And I'm not making this up. My heckler line is, what's going on? I yeah. say, what happened to you today? And I yeah. swear to you, every single time it's happened, it's something heartbreaking. It could be, yeah. if, they're, yeah. if they're open. I'm not saying they lost their job. That's like a movie cliche. But you can hear they just wanted a little bit of the blessing. It's, it's the priest. They want the, yeah. the person playing high priest of the night, the comedian, to acknowledge them. And I, there's healthier ways to do it. Just tell me it's your birthday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But everybody right, so, so So those you who are listening, unless you're driving, but these days nobody's driving, so that it's, it's safe to say this. That's right. Um, we'll do a two-minute meditation. If you want, you can close your eyes. But really just let yourself get quiet and take a couple of deep breaths to... <sighs> Release any obvious tension. And now feel the whole energy field of this human body that you inhabit. You aren't this body. You're the consciousness that was born in it, but you get to inhabit it. It's your vehicle for this incarnation. And feel your body, the whole field of it. There's tingles and sensations and hot and cold. And there's also all the extra tension you carry because it's tough times. The jaw gets tight or the shoulders carry weight or the belly. And you don't have to fix anything yet. But just to become aware of it with loving it, loving mindful, loving awareness. And feeling how much your body has been carrying in these past days and weeks without trying to do anything to fix it or change it. Just soften and say to your body, hold it with compassion. Soften, hold it with compassion. 
and say to your body, thank you. Thank you for caring so much. Thank you for trying to take care of me. And feel how your body responds. Just this little bit of loving attention. Thank you. Thank you for caring so much. I'm okay for now. And your body softens and its own way receives the thank you. Now bring the same loving, mindful, loving awareness to your heart. And notice what it's been carrying. It might be longing or love. It might be the ocean of tears or grief for what's going on in your life, around you, sadness. It might be anger or fear. The mind and heart together get apprehensive and worried, anxious. And feel all the things your heart is carrying. And wrap around them with compassion. It's trying so hard. Tenderness. And say to your heart, thank you. Thank you for caring so much. Thank you for trying so hard to protect me and take care of me. Thank you. I'm okay for now. And notice what happens in your heart as you say thank you. Hold it all with compassion. And feel how around the body and the heart and the mind, there's a spacious awareness that's always present. Consciousness, who you really are, the witness to the cosmic dance, the drama, that can say thank you to your body, to your heart and mind, because who you are is the vast, timeless awareness that is love, that includes all things. Rest in it. Relax in the openness and the great heart of compassion. And the last thing is you can ask your body, what does it need from you? And it will answer. And you can ask your heart, what does it need from you? And let it answer. You can know. So thank you all. Thank you for listening and experimenting with this meditation. Thank you, Mayor Pete. <laughs> hey, look. <laughs> there you go. There you go. You got the tools. You got it. Now we're Buddhist. Yeah. Jack, thank you so much. You are... You're you're like condensed milk. You know what I mean? Yeah, oversweet. I get it. <laughs> Makes you sick. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean you're the good stuff, but like 
tight and packed and beautiful. And you remind me of my great teacher, Ram Dass, and, and I'm so glad that uh, you're here and that, that you're sharing these ideas. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks to everybody who listened. Would you say that this is silly, but we have the final thing is we have the guests say, keep it crispy. Uh, I could tell you what it means, but you could just trust me that it means something good. <laughs> All right. And again, jackcornfield.com. If you really want something good. There you go. There it is. <laughs> now we're in showbiz. Now we're in showbiz. Thanks. Take care. Oh, you got to say, you got to say, keep it crispy. Keep it crispy? Yeah. But I have to say it with the right tone of voice. Yeah, say it in the Jack Cornfield certified meditation uh, teacher voice. Keep it blinking crispy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Jack. All right. Really appreciate it. All right. Bye. Bye bye.